Go ahead and be seated. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. I was talking with somebody earlier this week, and uh, talking about the text that we were going to go over, and she goes, oh, only seven verses? I said, yeah, this week. Next week's like 80, so uh, get ready. <laughs> All right, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, today we're going to talk about blind spots. See, I remember uh, going through my teenage years and getting to that most exciting time of every teenage boy's life, learning how to drive, right? It's exhilarating. It's exciting, intoxicating, and empowering, but it's also nerve-wracking, right? Especially when your mom is the one who's teaching you how to drive. Like, I didn't go to driving school. My mama was the one who taught me how to drive. And my mom, man, I love her. God love her. She's great at many things, but staying calm while teaching her son how to drive is not one of those. That's not her sweet spot. And I don't think that's true for any parent. It's always a nerve-wracking time because they've spent their whole lives being in control of the car, and then all of a sudden, somebody else takes the wheel, right? She was overly concerned with these things that, like safety, uh, paying attention, you know, correcting my bad behavior. She was so over-concerned with those with, as a young man, I didn't care about, right? I just wanted to get behind the wheel and go. And one of the things that she focused on teaching me while teaching me to drive, was to watch out for my blind spots. You have to look for your blind spots, right? Check your blind spots. Beware of your blind spots, because if you don't, there can be tragedy. And they're called blind spots because you can't see the full picture without looking for them, right? You have to pay very close and special attention to them. And this is all ironic because my mom is not good at checking her blind spots ever, But she wanted to make sure that I was. You have to turn your head. You have to make a conscious, conscience effort to look at your blind spots. And I never knew that I had blind spots until I was taught that they existed. That was one of the first things my mom taught me. And similarly, we have blind spots in our personal lives, right? Places where if we're not intentional and we're not intentional about addressing, they can become dangerous, they can become reckless, and they can become damaging to other people. However, we don't generally know we have the blind spots until somebody points them out to us, right? Whether it be a loving spouse, a a friend, a child, you know, someone will lovingly or unlovingly point them out to us and say, hey, you're losing it. And, And not only do we have personal blind spots, but as we're going to see today in the church life, we have blind spots in our ministry. We have to be intentional about finding them and intentional about looking for them. Again, these issues need to be discussed and solved rather than just ignored. That is the reason why it's important for us to get together and to worship and be part of each other's life so that we can rightly see each other's blind spots and point them out. We sometimes need a fresh or a new set of eyes to help point out where these blind spots are. I remember when I was dating Corey, and I was just being really mean for no reason. And my best friend said, hey, you're being really mean to her. And you say that you love her. And if you love her, stop being mean to her. And I didn't realize I was being mean to her. It was just kind of, you know, it was a blind spot. But he pointed it out to me. And once he pointed it out, I could address it. Right? Here's another illustration. So... I read a book a few weeks ago talking about how to make changes within the church. 
Don't get too scared, okay? Don't get too worried. But how to make changes, how to, how to do things differently in a church. And one of the things that it suggested that we do is that we bring somebody in to evaluate. Like somebody who's not tied to the church, just a random person coming in to visit the church to see things that are going on, to see how an outsider would look when they come to visit the church. And this is helpful because they look for things that we get complacent in or that we don't see anymore because we're used to it, right? This person would evaluate how the service goes, how the facilities look, how the congregation worships, and how friendly they are. Those are ways to check the blind spot because we tend to have these blind spots, and if we are not exposed to the reality of them being there, then we don't know how to fix them. And when those blind spots are brought to our attention, we don't need to balk at them. We don't need to ignore them. We don't need to make excuses for them. We need to rather address them and solve the issue at hand. And the early church was not immune to the same type of blindness, right? However, they did not ignore the issue. They tried to fix the issue in the most God-honoring, God-glorifying way. And that's what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the reality of your word. Thank you for the opportunity to study it, to get to know it, to get to grow in it, to get to love you more deeply because of it. Lord, thank you for the harsh reality that we're not perfect, that we need help, that we need each other to point out our insecurities, to help each other find our failures, Lord, so that we can address them and through your word and through your grace we can grow in them and father god i pray that as we enter into this time of looking at your word that you would be exalted that you would be glorified that in all that we say in all that we think and in all that we do lord that it would always be about you that would always be focused on you and i pray all these things in Jesus' name amen all right let's read Acts 6 1 through 7 it says this Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to, to this duty." But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man, of full, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They, these they set before the apostles. And, then, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the first thing that we see in this is that we see gospel-centered growth. They were increasing in number, we read in verse 1. And in verse 7, we read that they were multiplying greatly. These two verses are what are called an inclusio, where they wrap up the summary of the verses. Can we all agree? Can we all agree that church growth is a good thing? 
And that gospel-centered church growth is the only way to grow a church when we're focused on the mission and the ministry of Jesus. That people are coming to recognize their need for forgiveness and their need of reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That people need to find true hope, true grace, true mercy, and true fulfillment in who Jesus is. This is certainly something that should be celebrated and it is something that should be rejoiced in. And I would love to see this congregation outgrow this room, outgrow these buildings. I would love to see that, to hear many children running up and down and filling these rooms with, and halls with laughter and with questions and with joy. People growing in a deep relationship and a fulfilling relationship with who Jesus is and with one another. And I am betting that many of you would love to see the same thing, that many of you would want to see the same thing. However, I do know that there are some people in this room who think that they're a little scared of growth. They're a little scared of change. And I get that. Growth and and change can be scary. It can be overwhelming, and it can move us out of our comfort zone. But we should desire growth. And we have to be careful. Because not all growth is good growth. Not all growth is good growth. Growth can happen because of the gospel or it can happen in spite of the gospel. Growing a church by compromising sound doctrine and the truth of God is not good growth. That's not gospel-centered growth. It's person, program, or personality-centered. And what happens when growth happens apart from the gospel is that it will ultimately fail. It will ultimately fail, and it will eventually disband, and it will lead people astray. It will pull them out of the grace of God into their own selves. It will lead to personalities being the driving force or programs being the driving force of growth, and that's not healthy, and it's not the way that we want a church to grow. And I personally find it frustrating to see people led away from the truth that people are chasing after something. We cannot compromise the word of God. Scripture is our foundation, and it is our anchor. And we will not sacrifice the gospel to get more people in these doors. We will not sacrifice the truth to tickle the ears of some people. I would love to see an explosion of people coming to know Christ, but I will not forsake the gospel of Jesus Christ for growth, because not all growth is good. Not all growth is helpful. Not all growth is healing. But gospel growth is good. And that means that we are accomplishing the great commission, that we are reaching other people to come to know Jesus Christ. Gospel growth means that we are following in the footsteps of Jesus and the disciples. Gospel-centered growth means that we are preaching and teaching the word of God. It means that we are staying true to the one who has saved us, that we are relying on God to grow the church and not my ability, my influence, or my programs, but God alone. Gospel-centered growth may at times be slower than people-centered growth, but it stays true to God. And that is better than anything we could ever ask for, staying true to the one who saved us. And you may be wondering, Josh, why are you talking about church growth? 
I can hear it now from some, some people, some critics, maybe not here, but in other places. It seems like the churches are overly concerned with numbers. Why are you concerned on, on the number of people attending? Why are you focused on growing numbers? Aren't we enough? Well, here's the reality. God is concerned with numbers. God is concerned with numbers because numbers represent people and people are important to God. We should be concerned with numbers because numbers are important to God. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible called what? Numbers, right? Where God is taking a census of his people. And as Baptists, we tend to love our numbers, right? We love our Sunday school numbers. We love our offering numbers. We love our membership numbers. But sometimes we love numbers more than the people that those numbers represent. And that's not healthy. See, people are at the heart of the gospel. And God loves people. They aren't just numbers. They are lives being transformed by the gospel. And one of the reasons we count people is because people count. People matter. Each person that follows after Jesus is important. They're important to God and they're important to the local body. And I don't know about you, but every time a new face walks in that door, I get super excited. I get so happy that God is bringing someone here that this is another person who gets to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is another person who can be encouraged during our time of worship. That this is another person who may not know the gospel of Jesus Christ and they're going to get to hear it for the first time. That this is another person that may give their life to Jesus and become a new creation today. And that's exciting because that's what we're in the business of is showing people Jesus There are no accidents. God is orchestrating and organizing every single person's day. God knows their name. God knows their personality. And he knows their past. And he wants to save them. He wants to deliver them. He wants to show them how good and gracious he is. And when someone is here, we should all be equally excited for the fact that they are here to worship the one true king. But as people start coming, as the church starts growing, growth brings with it its own problems. Even gospel-centered growth brings with it its own problems. And we see that happening in the early church, in this first church in Acts. See, this first church was not perfect, but it is a model that we should be open to following. And we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So here's a ministry blind spot. Okay? We learn about the problem here. There was a complaint among a certain sect of believers. This is something that's bound to happen. It's bound to happen when there's growth. Someone may feel like they are being left behind, they are being overlooked, or they are being ignored. When we got here, Corey and I and the kids got here, the first thing that we, we had to do was to get a nursery in place. Now, I'm not saying that was a blind spot, that, that was a need that the church had that it didn't have when we moved here, right? And so we got one up and running. And that's just one family moving in, right? If we see an influx of people, we're going to have to need more places to put them, right? Imagine if the growth was bigger than just one family moving in. 
Now, in this case, the complaint in the Acts church was that they were, that were people being neglected. The Hellenistic widows were not being taken care of the way that they should have. Now, real quick, in Jerusalem during this time, there were two sects of Jewish people, okay? There were the Hellenistic Jews and there were Hebraic Jews, okay? They were, this referred strictly to the language that they spoke during worship and together, okay? They did worship at different synagogues as well. So the Hellenistic Jews were Christian. These, these were Christians that we're talking about here that spoke primarily Greek. They were Jews that had just moved back to Jerusalem after they had been dispersed forever back in the Old Testament. You can read about that later. So this was an exiled group of people who were bringing back to the Promised Land after hundreds of years of being away. They were scattered, and then they came back together And as they got older, they came back so they could die in the holy city. So these widows didn't have anything when they moved back into Jerusalem. So they were relying on the church to provide for them. And they not only spoke Greek, but they had a bent towards Greek culture, which further isolated them from the Hebraic Jews, the Jews that had lived there and had been established in Jerusalem. So we see that there's a tension, and there's a conflict in this first church, that it's not... Uh, homogenous. It's consisted of people from different backgrounds, from different languages, from all nations and tongues. They had differing ways of worshiping. They had different worldviews, and these differences led to more tension in the first church. So the first church wasn't perfect, but it is a model. So to dispel the tension that was being caused by this neglect, there was a fight for unity, a fight for showing what the problem was. Because with this neglect, this feeling of neglect, it became distancing and isolating to these this Hellenistic Jews. And we heard a few weeks back when we talked about the church was ready to help whenever a need arose so that there wasn't one person needy, right? We saw that. But again, we see this blind spot. So they're not willingly neglecting the widows. Rather, they just had an ignorance of the problem, and it needed to be brought to their attention. Though not explicitly stated here in the text, we will assume that there was no ill will towards the Hellenistic Jews, that there was no purposeful shunning of them, because that's not the model that we see. But think about it this way, okay? This church body, this church body in Acts, had now grown to upwards of 20,000 people. That's where the number 20,000 came from right? 20,000 people, and it had 12 pastors to oversee it. They had 12 pastors to oversee 20,000 people. And these pastors were busy preaching and teaching and trying to get everything done so that more people could come to know Christ. That's 1,600 per people per one pastor. That's impossible. There would be no way that the 12 could overcome these odds. So the problem is presented, and it needs a solution. And not just any solution is going to do it. It needs a God-honoring, gospel-centered, and a need-focused solution. So what do the disciples decide to do? They create a solution to the problem. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 2 through 6, we see this. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, the proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. So there's a gospel-centered solution. The first thing that might jump out at you, and it did to me, is that the apostles state that it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to go serve tables. Okay? This can sound a bit harsh to our minds. What do they mean? What do they mean? It's not good for them. Do they think that they are too good to serve the tables? Where's their servant attitude? What, what, what's going on here? And there's even a better translation of this phrase, and it would be that it would not be pleasing in the eyes of God for us to stop preaching. It would not be pleasing in the eyes of God. Wow! That sounds a little drastic, doesn't it? How is serving the underprivileged, the sick, the hurting, the widowed, not pleasing to the Lord? Hmm. Here's what's happening. The apostles are evaluating their priorities. So what are their priorities? Well, in verse 4, we see that their devotion to prayer and the ministry of the word. What we have to understand is that the church body is brought together and that each member is gifted to serve in certain areas of ministry. We talked about this morning in the Sunday school that some of us are really good at building things, creating things from nothing. We're really good at designing and decorating, and some of us are really not good at those things. Right? But we may be better at other things. And we recognize that as God pulls us together, there are going to be good things that some people are good at and other things that other people are good at. And for each member, we must recognize that the way that God has gifted us is the way that we should be serving. This is how effective ministry is completed within the body of the church. Some are teachers, some are preachers, some are servers, some are encouragers, some are hospitable, some are fill-in-the-blank. I am fill in the blank. That is the way and the capacity by which God has created us to serve him, to serve the church, and to serve the community. The apostles are not going to neglect the situation. Rather, they are going to find men that will serve to operate in that capacity. So they're not going to ignore it, but they're going to find a solution. They aren't saying that it's not important, that it's not going to get done, but that it's going to get done by someone else because that's how God has gifted them. These first pastors had to devote themselves to praying and preaching the word of God, and that's an important factor for any man that is called to serve in the pastoral role. We have to be devoted to personal prayer, to personal study, to personal holiness, so that the word of God can work in us and amongst the congregation. If a pastor is deficient in prayer, that demonstrates a detrimental reality of self-sufficiency. And we can't be self-sufficient as pastors. We have to rely on God. The prayer is important for every believer. But as go the pastor, so goes the church. Charles Spurgeon wrote once about ministers in prayer. The minister who does not earnestly pray over his work must be a vain and conceited man. A vain and conceited man. So pastors and leaders of the church need to be devoted to their calling and not get, get bogged down with too many other things. Now, this may start to sound like I'm complaining, but I want to assure you that I'm not complaining. I just want you to see what ministry looks like for many pastors. Okay? We, as pastors, also have the difficult task of preparing 
at least one sermon each week. Okay, so Corey and I, we recently finished watching The West Wing. I don't know if anybody's ever watched The West Wing. It's about president. And what's interesting about the president is that they have a staff of writers. They have a staff of writers that construct, review, edit, and finalize every speech. Multiple revisions, right? They continue to do this. And I, I, I had to laugh because I don't got any of that. And I have to try to get up here every week and tell you guys what the Word of God is saying through my own personal study, my own limited understanding, my own limited views. And every week, our sermons are, are wanting to be fresh, new, and inspiring. And every week, it's difficult, but God is God, and God is good. Unless people think that we are dull and uninspired, we have to try to bring it every week. We try to have to hit a home run every week. Now, providentially and thankfully, I enjoy reading, and I enjoy writing, and I enjoy researching and putting a sermon together every week. I enjoy that. And I love hearing your comments after a sermon about stepping on your toes, about inspiring you to think, about prompting you to ask questions. That's just one of the amazing things about this job, about this calling, about the opportunity to serve you. But this is just one part of pastoral ministry. Just know, I say all this, that, to say this, that I need help. We as pastors need help. We can't do it alone. And we all have blind spots. So we need to be careful about assigning blame and malice when something gets overlooked. Instead, offer to help. Present a solution. Seek understanding about the situation. Because if we start to blame, we're going to breed anger and resentment. And unfortunately, there are many small churches where the pastor is called to be a jack of all trades. Where he's called to do everything. If something breaks, he fixes it. In every ministry that started, or he is the teacher, he's the leader, he's the organizer. He becomes a jack of all trades and a master of none. But I want to tell you that I am grateful for everybody here at First Baptist Church Louise because most of you are willing to jump in and to step in and to accomplish what I can't. You're willing to do that. You see the value of my time studying the Word of God, of preparing a sermon, that I don't have to do all things, and I appreciate that. I'm grateful for your willingness to listen, to organize, and to be open to helping wherever I need help. I can't do anything, and I appreciate the fact that you all recognize that. And in addition to that, I'm not shy about my limitations. I let you guys know when I'm limited all the time. And this is not just true for me, but it's true for every pastor, that our primary calling is to teach and preach the Word of God, to pray for guidance for the church, and to train you all, to do the work of the ministry. If we are unable to do these things, it won't matter what programs are in place. It won't matter how much money is in the bank. It won't matter because if the pastor's personal relationship with God fails, so will the church. We've heard over the past several years about churches, tragic stories about churches collapsing because of the moral failures or abandonment of faith or other stories of pastors not living holy lives. And this causes chaos, and it wreaks havoc, it causes pain and heartache. 
And it has tainted our witness when prominent pastors and theologians fail because they're more, they're more focused on being popular than they are being servants. And I want to let you know that every t- if ever I get a big head, I want you to pop it. I want you to take a pen and pop it. <laughs> Thanks, Levi. Uh, See, I told you kids, man. Because we all have limitations. And when we start to think we don't have limitations, then we get too big for our britches. Right? And this is what the apostles recognized. They knew what their calling was. They knew what their mission was. They knew what their limitations were. And so they needed to come around and pick up. They needed others to come around and pick up where they were limited. And they called the whole group, again, 20,000 people together to cast a vote. Man, we love voting, don't we? We love voting on things. The men, for the men who would fill this sport. Now, this is where congregational churches get their structure for how church government should be, where we should vote on important decisions like leadership, budget, etc., and move forward in a God-honoring way. So if you ever ask, hey, how do we get to what we do now? This is one of the scriptures that we use. That, that we get a list of names, they get a list of names together of men who were called to serve the Hellenistic Jews, the congregation, and these men were, those men, Stephen and Nicholas and all those, and these men were not just picked because they showed up. Right? They didn't just show up and they go, you're the one. They were picked because they met a, the criteria set by the apostles. And what was the criteria that the apostles set for these men? It was that they were of good repute, full of spirit, and full of wisdom. These men were exemplary in their faithfulness to God. They were devout believers. They were students of Jesus' teaching. They were honorable, they were coachable, and they were wise. And in wisdom, meaning that they feared God and they loved people. Their reputations were solid and they were led by the Spirit. Too often in church life, what we do is we try to find someone to fill a spot because spots are empty. Give me a warm body and I'll make it work. Just Let's just plug somebody in there. But we have to understand that if someone is going to be in a position of power and influence, they need to be worthy of that calling. Not just a warm, warm body, they need to be worthy of that calling. And these men, the seven, met those qualifications. They met those qualifications and the congregation agreed to allow them to serve the church. And this is a beautiful picture of how the church should operate because the church is both an organization and an organism. We need structure to run properly, but we also have to be flexible in that structure because we are ever-changing. As God grants us growth, we're going to be ever-changing. We have to always be evaluating, assessing, and changing to meet the needs of the congregation. And the choosing of the seven here is a picture, a beautiful picture of that process. Because everyone was in agreement. They saw these men, they knew these men, they knew who they were, and they said, yes, these men. And then they were bathed in prayer before they were commissioned. And this is church done right. We know very little about these men who are mentioned. Uh, however, you know, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to hear about two of them. We're going to hear about um, Stephen and Philip. Next week, we'll spend a whole sermon on Stephen. And it's important to realize that these men were all spirit-filled, but they all, most of them, sat in the background, serving the church. They were committed to the cause of Christ, the mission of Christ, and the will of Christ to serve that local body. This chapter is where many of churches get their idea of what a deacon should be. 
Acts 6, 1 through 7, the deacon chapter. The word deacon means servant. Deacons are called to serve the body of Christ. If you have been, will be called to be a deacon in the church, notice that your primary responsibility is to serve the physical needs of the congregation and to aid the pastor in doing ministry around the church. Servants. And I'm grateful. I'm extremely grateful for the two deacons that we currently have serving the body of Christ. They serve selflessly. At a beck and call, they are committed to making sure that ministry is done right here at First Baptist Louise. As we grow and as we change, we may have to add more deacons to the church to help serve the church well. And I want you to pray about this. Pray for these men who will be called to be deacons. I want you to pray for those who might enter into this type of ministry. I want you to pray about and see that maybe God's calling you to be a deacon here. I want you to know that I continue to pray for the future leaders and servants of this church body, and you should too. You should always be praying for the past, the current, and the future leaders of this congregation. You should always be praying for them. So why do we need to fix our blind spots with gospel-centered solution? Why do we need, why did, why did God put this here? Well, we meet the needs through a gospel-centered solution so that the gospel can continue to reach the lost. Acts 6-7 it says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. In Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We see there's a gospel centered mission focus. We see that the issue is solved quickly, without interruption, so that the disciples could get back to doing what they were called to do, which is to spread the gospel. God's word is being prayed, it's being preached, it's being taught in the early church, and because of that, God is blessing the church by increasing them in number and multiplying them greatly. God's word changes hearts. God's word changes lives. God's word can even penetrate the hardened hearts of those who are opposed to him. Just look, here it says, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. These were the same ones who condemned Jesus. These were the same ones who tried to capture the apostles, who persecuted the apostles, these were the religious, righteous ones who opposed the gospel, opposed Jesus, and yet God was saving them. He came to save even those who stood opposed to him. He came to save those who were in rebellion against them, against him. He came to save the broken, the sinful, and the rebellious people. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you are never too far out of reach from the grace of God. No matter what you have done, no matter where you have gone, no matter how much you continue to mess up, God's grace is still abundant. God's grace is still sufficient. God's grace is still within reach. After all, isn't this what ministry is all about? That's why we exist to make much about the goodness of Jesus Regardless of the hiccups and the blind spots that are a reality in a church filled with sinners, we want you, if you don't know Jesus, to join us for this ride. Because God is calling you to himself. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to God. He comes to you right where you are. 
And he rescues you from yourself. He rescues you from your sin. He redeems you. He comes and he takes your hand and he says, join me, follow me, and I will give you life abundant and life eternal. Submit to him. Follow after him. It won't be easy, but I can guarantee you it's worth it. These priests were going to have to give up. These priests who were coming to Jesus, they were going to have to give up their livelihood, their status. They were going to have to give up their influence to follow Jesus. And they said, yes, I'll give it up all. I'll give it all away. So I ask you, will you say yes to Jesus regardless of the cost? Will you submit to his lordship? We're going to have a time of prayer and reflection. We're going to sing a song. and This is a time for you to, to cry out to God, to repent, to ask for strength, because he's calling people to himself. only question is, will you answer him? Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful for what you've done for us, Lord, that you save us from the pit that you save us from ourselves, Lord. That even though things aren't perfect here and now, Lord, you are making all things new. You are making all things perfect, Lord. We're so grateful for who you are. Transform our hearts into your image. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, I have decided to follow Jesus.